Hi, my name's Zach. I'm 12 years old, and I host We the Children, the podcast where kids talk climate change. Like a lot of kids my age, when I think about the future, I can't help but wonder what kind of world will be waiting for us. Will polar bears still roam the Arctic? Will we still be able to see colorful coral reefs or build snowmen in the winter? I'd like to think so. That's why I'm trying to learn as much as I can about climate change science, stories, and solutions from some of the world's leading experts, and share what I learned with all of you. Together, we can decide what type of future we want for our planet. Subscribe to We the Children on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at wethechildrenpodcast.com. Remember, we, the children, have the power to make a difference. So, what is your favorite baseball team? The Cubs. And what's your name? Ben. And how long have you been playing baseball for? Uh, like five years or something. Uh, so, do you think about the science at all when you're playing baseball, Ben? Not really. Not really? Well, Ben, this episode is for you and for all the other Little Leaguers out there. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of the show about science. This is your host, Nate. And today, this episode is going to be a home run. We're going to hit it out of the park, because we are talking about the science of baseball. It's going to be one dinger of an interview, so let's meet our guest, Alan M. Nathan. All right, so welcome to the show about science. Why, thank you, Nate. Good to be with you. Yeah, it's good to be with you, too. So, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in the physics of baseball? Okay. Um, I'm a physicist, a physics professor, actually, at the University of Illinois. Been uh, at the University of Illinois since 1977. I used to be an experimental nuclear physicist. And uh, a bunch of years ago, I started uh, dabbling a little bit in the physics of baseball. And uh, I've always been a baseball fan. But it took me a long, long time to figure out how I could be both a baseball fan and somehow apply physics to baseball. But there was a very nice little book that was written in the early 90s by Professor Robert Adair, who was a physics professor at Yale. And I bought the book and thought it was very interesting. And I thought not only was it very interesting, but I sort of thought, you know, like this is something that I actually could devote my own efforts to. So that's how it began. And uh, I'm actually now retired from the university and I virtually spend all my time on physics and baseball. What are you guys doing over there? We're recording sounds for a podcast on baseball. Hey, sound and everything. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I'll have to put on the umpire voice today. Yeah. <laughs> that would be nice. So, I don't talk about like what I do activity-wise a lot on the show, but I am in Little League. And 
in Little League and in some of the other minor leagues before you get to the major leagues, you're allowed to use, like, aluminum and metal bats, whereas in the, like, major leagues, you can only use wooden bats. So can you tell us why aluminum and metal bats are better than wooden bats? Sure. So you you have to understand a little bit about what goes on when the bat hits the ball. If you were to look at high-speed video, and nowadays there's plenty of that around, you would see that ball being literally crushed. It actually is compressed and sort of wraps itself around the curved surface of the bat. And that's a very, very inefficient process when that ball gets compressed like that. And then, of course, then it expands back out again and gets back to its original spherical shape. When that happens, there's a lot of energy that's lost. After all, when the ball compresses, if you were to look inside of a baseball, it's mostly blue yarn, okay? And so when that ball compresses, the fibers of that little yard are actually rubbing up against each other, creating friction and therefore heat. And that heat is simply another form of energy. It's energy that basically is lost to the motion of the ball. Some of that motion of the ball got converted into heat. So it's very, very inefficient process. Now, Let's compare what happens when the ball hits a very hard surface like a wood bat versus Mm -hmm. an aluminum bat. When the ball hits a wood bat, when the bat hits the ball, basically all of that energy goes into compressing the ball. Very little of it goes into the bat, and that's the inefficient process I was telling you about. Okay. So what's different about an aluminum bat? An aluminum bat is hollow, and that plays an enormous role because when the ball hits a hollow bat, some of the energy can actually go into compressing the wall of the bat instead of the ball, okay? And remember, when the ball gets compressed, that's very, very inefficient. It turns out, for a little bit of complicated reasons, when the bat gets compressed, it actually springs back again and gives that energy back to the ball again. And by the way, that's called the trampoline effect. You may have heard the words. You get yeah. a trampoline effect generally from a hollow bat. Boing. You don't get much of a trampoline effect from a wood bat. And it's that trampoline effect which makes the aluminum bat so much more efficient. And more efficient means that you can get higher exit velocity. This less energy is dissipated in compressing the ball. And so more energy goes back into the ball and you get a higher speed. These are the basic elements of good hitting. Turn towards the pitcher with your front shoulder down and in. Step towards the pitcher so that your momentum and weight are going right back towards the pitcher, which helps you do one very important thing, to keep your head down. So after the bat hits a ball, and say it's a ball that flies into the outfield, what's happening while the ball is in the air? Well, the primary thing that's going on is just simply gravity, okay? And that's very simple. I mean, when you take a 
a first year physics course in high school, you learn all about the motion of the ball through the air when all you have is gravity acting on it. You know, the ball goes up, the ball goes down. But some of the very same things apply when you take the effects of the air into account. One of the major effects is that when the ball goes through the air, the ball has to push the air out of the way. Air is not very dense, but there's a lot of it, okay? And so the ball has to push the air out of the way. So in effect, the ball is transferring some of its energy to the air molecules, and that slows the ball down. So that is what's known as air resistance. Sometimes I call it wind resistance, or sometimes it's called air drag, okay? Mm-hmm. It slows the ball down. And that's the major effect. A baseball that's hit at an exit velocity of maybe 100 miles an hour at maybe a 25 to 30 degree launch angle in real life with the effect of drag travels something like close to 400 feet. If it weren't for the air drag on the ball, it would travel probably close to 700 feet. So air plays a big role. And one of the reasons why the ball travels further at a place like Coors Field in Denver is because Denver is a mile above sea level where there's less air. Less air means less air that has to get pushed out of the way and therefore less drag and the ball carries further. And if Major League Baseball would ever expand to Mexico City, for example, where the elevation is, I don't remember exactly, something like 6,500 feet above sea level, it would travel even further than it does in Denver. So air plays a huge role. It especially plays a role in the flight of a flying ball. But there's one more effect that comes into play, which has to do with the fact that the ball is spinning. And so there is a whole different force on the ball due to the fact that it's spinning. And it has the fancy name of the Magnus effect. The Magnus effect is sort of why a curveball curves. It affects pitched baseballs as well as batted baseball. When the batted ball has backspin, the Magnus force is pointing upward, opposite to gravity. So it sort of counteracts, at least in part, gravity. So balls hit with backspin will travel further than balls that are not hit with backspin. And similarly, if the ball were hit with topspin, which is actually not common for fly balls, it is common for line drives, when the ball has topspin, the... Magnus forces downward, same direction as gravity. And so the ball doesn't stay in the air as long. It doesn't travel as far. So backspin makes the ball travel further. Popspin makes the ball travel less far than it otherwise would. Okay. So how can batters try to get backspin instead of topspin after they hit? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Uh, it has to do with how the bat and ball meet, okay? And when the bat meets the ball, you know, slightly under the center of the ball, the ball will generally go up in the air and will have backspin. Okay. And when the bat hits the ball above the center of the ball, the ball generally goes down like a grounder and has topspin on it. So it has to do with how that, bat and ball meet up with each other that determines what the spin is on the batted ball. 
So let's say that a couple people struck out. Now we're in the outfield. Now we've got someone pitching. So if you're the pitcher, is there any way that you could use physics to get the ball to curve or go down or do something that'll trick the batter into swinging at a ball that they can't hit? Sure. Another excellent question. So this Magnus force that I just mentioned with respect to fly balls also applies with respect to pitching. And in fact, that is one of the major tools that a pitcher has is controlling the spin rate, the number of revolutions per minute or RPM, and the spin axis okay, of the pitch ball. So for example, a typical four-seam fastball has backspin on it. And remember, this Magnus force on a ball hit with backspin is up. So it sort of opposes gravity. So the ball doesn't drop quite as much. Typically, if you're throwing a four-seam fastball, your goal is to get a lot of backspin on that ball so the ball sort of stays up near the top of the strike zone. That's the goal. On the other hand, if the ball has topspin, which is what typically a curveball has, then the Magnus force is down in the same direction as gravity, and the ball drops more than it would just from gravity alone. And typically the goal of a curveball is to keep the ball low in the zone. Sometimes you even purposely throw it in the dirt because uh, if the batter doesn't realize that ball is going to be dropping rapidly, he might still swing on it, even though it's in the dirt. So there's backspin, there's topspin, there's also sidespin, and anything in between. A slider is typically thrown with sidespin, so the movement on a sidespin is horizontal. Typically, a right-handed pitcher will throw a right-handed batter, a slider, and that ball will break towards the outside of home plate, or sometimes even off a plate. Hmm. Oftentimes, it's simply used to try to get the batter to swing at a bad pitch. So how can batters and pitchers alike use physics to help them strike more people out or hit more runs in games? Yeah. So um, keep in mind that most baseball players simply don't know any physics. Okay. Yeah. That's what this is for. Yeah. And keep in mind, therefore, that all I am trying to do when I study the physics of baseball is understand the physics of what these guys already know intuitively. They know because they have experience, they play the game. Pitchers know from having played the game, if they spin the ball in a certain way about a certain axis, whether it's backspin or topspin or something, or sidespin or something in between, they know that that ball is going to move in a certain way. Okay. And that's part of their strategy. They're, they're trying to outguess the hitter, and they're trying to oftentimes get a batter to swing at a bad pitch, or they're trying to get a batter to wrongly guess at what that pitch is going to be. So, for example... One of the things pitchers try to do is they've got lots of different types of pitches that they throw, you know, fastball, curveball, slider, uh, two-seam fastball, or sinker. 
And they're trying to get those pitches to look as much like each other as they can for as much of the trajectory as they can. Mm -hmm. So that by the time the batter has to decide whether he's going to swing, he doesn't really know whether that ball is going to break up, down, left, or right. And, and again, pitchers know that and they understand. Batters, they also know the game very well. I dare say there's not a whole lot I could teach batters based on the physics of the game, but they understand the difference among the different types of bats, wood, aluminum, heavy bat, like that. Okay, they understand those things very well. They also understand that one of the primary goals is to hit the ball on the sweet spot of the bat. That's sort of the ideal location to hit the ball, you know, maybe five or six inches in from the barrel end of the bat. If you hit too close to the tip of the bat or too close to the label on the bat, you're not going to make good contact. The ball is not going to have this high in exit velocity. Once again, that's something that physics can talk about, but the batters already know this. The batters also know that uh, there is a great reward for hitting that ball as hard as possible. Exit velocity counts for a lot. Whether you're trying to hit a home run or whether you're just trying to punch a single through the infield. But batters also know that uh, there's a greater reward if you hit the ball in the air. I mean, the data show this. And there's a tendency these days for batters to not only hit the ball hard, but to hit the ball hard at some launch angle that will make that ball travel a long distance. Just as long as you don't hit a pop fly really hard. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely right. So, you know, when you're swinging for the fences, so to speak, it's sort of like an all or nothing kind of thing, right? If you hit it hard enough, it's going to go over the fence. And if you don't, it's probably going to get caught. But there are different strategies for hitting. And I think Major league hitters over the years have changed that strategy. I mean, it used to be that hitting line drives was a good thing because if you actually look at the kind of hit that will get you on base the most often, it's sort of a low line drive, something that clears the infield, goes over the head of the infielders, but drops in front of the outfield. Okay. If you can do that consistently, uh, then you're probably going to get on base consistently. But you're not going to hit too many home runs by hitting the ball at a low angle like that. So again, there are many strategies for how to go about hitting, and uh, over the years, batters have changed. I think nowadays, it seems to be the case for the last five, six, seven years, batters are mostly trying to hit home runs, so they really are trying to hit that ball in the air. Maybe a history-making day. Red Sox and A's in a doubleheader here at Chai Park in Philadelphia. But all eyes are on this man, Ted Williams, gunning for a 400 season. He's hitting at even 400. I think if I were Ted, I would sit out today, but Ted never backed into anything. High fly ball into right field. She is gone! Okay. So the thing that I'm taking away from this interview is that if you're all right at baseball, you also kind of innately understand parts of physics. <laughs> Uh, yes, I think that's exactly right. You may not be able to explain it using the technical language that I would use, but you do understand it. Uh, Ted Williams, if you could uh, see the room that I'm in, you would see that it is plastered with pictures of all kinds of Ted Williams memorabilia. Ted Williams played for the Boston Red Sox 1939 and 1960. 
ended up with 521 career home runs and a 482 or three lifetime on-base percentage, which is unheard of for someone to do that in a single year is unheard of these days. Anyway, Ted Williams wrote a book in the 70s called The Science of Hitting. And you could go back and look at that book nowadays and see Ted Williams understood all these things about how to swing a bat without knowing a bit of physics. He just understood these things from having played the game very, very well over a very long career. So I, every now and then I pick up that book and I go back and I look at it and I marvel at how much he knew without having any formal physics training whatsoever. And one more question before you go. What is your favorite baseball team? Ah, well, that's an easy one, the Boston Red Sox. I mean, I agree on socks. Don't agree with the color. Go White Sox. And thank you, Alan, for being on the show today. Well, you're very welcome. Uh, You've asked some very good questions. And, um, you know, I've been interviewed by a lot of people, but never anyone (laughs) as charming as you. Thank you. There you have it, folks. The show about science is complete. A special thank you to my Grandpa Mike, my Uncle Jeff, and my cousin Matt for encouraging me to play baseball. This episode wouldn't be possible without them. All right, Dad, you can shut the recording off. Hi, my name's Zach. I'm 12 years old, and I host We the Children, the podcast where kids talk climate change. Like a lot of kids my age, when I think about the future, I can't help but wonder what kind of world will be waiting for us. Will polar bears still roam the Arctic? Will we still be able to see colorful coral reefs or build snowmen in the winter? I'd like to think so. That's why I'm trying to learn as much as I can about climate change science, stories, and solutions from some of the world's leading experts and share what I learned with all of you. Together, we can decide what type of future we want for our planet. Subscribe to We The Children on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And visit us at wethechildrenpodcast.com. Remember, we, the children, have the power to make a difference.